This is uh, Luke 12, 1 through 12. Luke 12, 1 through 12. Read the scripture to you. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The word of the Lord. Well, there have been some potentially compromising pictures of me leaked on the internet. I have been seen in the company of a belly dancer. It was a very uh, strange incident. I was with my good friends, Joe and Carol Harcel, who are here with their son, Sam. Uh, dear friends from Young Life Days, we were at Amon, how do you say it, a Greek restaurant. We were sitting, have a good, having a good time, when not all of a sudden this belly dancer comes out of nowhere and violently accosts me. I was frightened. I couldn't move and forced to take a picture with her. So if you see said picture, know the circumstances. No, I did not put it up. That, I looked at it, I even had my wife send it and I thought, no, no, that, the sermon's done if I put that up. Uh, so needless to say, you know, it is, it is a funny thing. I was uh, gonna uh, introduce this, uh, you know, but uh, uh, many folks who wear something like this uh, you know, have fallen prey to um, adultery and, and these sort of things. I think the number is somewhere around 20% of pastors. Uh, and, uh, you know, when it happens, and I've had friends who it's happened to, it's a horrible thing. Um, there's a truth in life that I want to talk about today, which is you don't know what you believe until it is tested. In fact, yesterday, my, my wife and Carol went out uh, on a walk, a small 14-mile jaunt in the rain. Who would cause someone to do such a crazy thing? Well, Carol is going to be hiking something called El Camino, which is a route that I think uh, the, the, uh, maybe the Apostle St. James took. I don't know, in Spain, it's a 500-mile trail. Uh, it's a pilgrimage, and she's hiking about 270 miles of it, and... Uh, and uh, so she's, I'm like, why are you going now? And she was actually wearing a pack and everything. And the goal is to simul stim uh, simulate what you're going to experience on the trail. But how do you know that one day 
is going to illustrate whether you're going to be able to make the whole trip. Well, you don't. You see, you don't know what you believe until it's tested. I learned that with marathon running. I'm still learning it in my marriage. You know, we stand up in front of a pastor and we say, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. Well, we don't know if those vows are really going to hold. We do know maybe with richer, but we don't know with poorer. We do maybe know in health because hopefully you're healthy when you're getting married, but we don't know in sickness. So you don't know what you believe until it's tested. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate to this, these disciples, that a time of testing is coming. And yes, you follow me now. Yes, you worship now. But persecution is coming. And it's at that point that you will really know what it is that you believe. We think about these stories of persecution in the Bible, and we hear stories uh, in other countries. But the reality is whether you're in the United States or in somewhere else, it is becoming increasingly dangerous to be a Christian. If you look at the conflict in the Middle East and the things going on in Syria, you are taking your life into your hands when you profess, profess the name of Jesus Christ. And I see a trend going on in the United States. And if it continues, my friends, there will come a time when to preach the gospel in the United States will be one of the most dangerous things you can do. Now, the church will continue to exist, but a, a neutered Christianity, a Christianity that does not offend, a Christianity without an exclusive Christ, that will flourish in America. But what the future holds, I'm not so certain. And so Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's speaking to us as well. And what he's saying to us is that we need to decide who we are now, not when the time of testing comes. Because the decisions we make now and the actions we take in regard to those decisions will reveal who we are later. The decision that Christ is calling us to is wholeheartedness. Jesus does not call us to perfection. He calls us to devotion. And the question we have to ask is, is God trustworthy for us to give our whole hearts to him? And the answer is yes. The cross demonstrates it, where his love ran red and our sins were washed white. The resurrection demonstrates his trustworthiness to hold our hearts in his hands. So I want to shine the flashlight of God's word on your heart so that you can leave here with the answer, who am I? Jesus has demonstrated to us that he is worthy of all of our heart's devotion. So don't settle for anything less than giving all of yourself to all of him. There's a progression that I see in this passage. The first thing that God calls us to is wholehearted devotion. In fact, it's the only thing he calls us to. Because when we give ourselves wholeheartedly devoted to God, that leads to my second point, a wholehearted trust. We can have a trust in God regardless of the circumstances of the world. This leads me to my final point. We can have a wholehearted confidence when we do come up 
against persecution, when we do come up against the enemies of our faith, we can live with confidence. So my three points are simply this, devotion, trust, and confidence. This is the life that God calls us to. Well, let's look at point number one, a wholehearted devotion. We see in the beginning, it says in the meantime, it's a great link to whatever happened before, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first. Okay, this many thousands, the word actually translated sort of into English would be myriads or ten thousands. It's a figurative word. There's a massive crowd, so massive that you couldn't even count them are gathering together. But this crowd is a little bit different than the other crowds. They're trampling one another. There's a sense in the language here that all is not exciting and well, as much as like, say, the 5,000 when they're gathering together to feed. In fact, we see in the meantime what happened before. Jesus openly rebukes the Pharisees, and it's like he's crossed over the line. Because right before this verse, it says, and he, as he went away from there, meeting, meeting with the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. And so before, as the disciples were with Jesus, there was a sense of exuberance, sense of expectation and excitement. Now there's something different. There's a sense of foreboding, a sense of something's about to get out of hand. See, Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, and now it says that people are not receiving him. And Jesus is, in fact, warning the disciples. After his last miracle, he said, get this through your head to the disciples. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed. So Jesus is preparing them in the midst of this upcoming storm. He began to say to his disciples first, in verse uh, 12, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Is it leaven or is it leaven, by the way? Is it tomato or tomato? Okay, leaven. All right, fair enough. I think it looks like leaven, but oh well. Leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware is the word he uses. In the Greek, it means be continually vigilant. Stand guard, if you will, against the leaven of the Pharisees. This leaven... We think of it as yeast, but the language here in the Greek, it's more like a, a fermented dough, if you will, where you take some of the old, uh, the old batch and you stick it in the new batch, right? And its purpose is to pervade. Its purpose is to extend. Beware of this leaven coming from the Pharisees. And what is this leaven, Jesus says? It's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, we talked about this word. Hypocrisy is the same word to use and describe an actor in ancient uh, Greece. There's a two-facedness of these Pharisees. Remember what Jesus said, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. There's two sides to these Pharisees. They claim to worship God, they look like they worship God. They wear all the right clothes and say all the right things. And yet inside of their hearts, they're full of greed and wickedness. 
It's that tree and fruit thing, right? Look at the fruit and you'll see the tree. Beware of this leaven. And because the Pharisees are the leaders of Israel and the teachers of Israel, it appears that this leaven has permeated Israel. Now, the thing about leaven is that no one really sees it working when it's working. It happens secretly. It contaminates covertly. Jesus says in verse 2, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. It's a principle of life here. What you sow, so shall you reap. What you are will be made manifest. Nothing is covered up. It's a principle we can take to the bank. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. There's an active intent, if you will. Notice something is actually being covered up by someone, but you can't stop it from being made known. Or you can take something and hide it, but ultimately it will be known. See, there's a difference between hypocrisy and integrity. Integrity means the inside and the outside match. Whether you like it or not, whether you play the role of hypocrite, ultimately, integrity will occur because what is inside will be made manifest outside. Verse 3, Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the private room shall be proclaimed from the housetops. Notice, why do you say something in the dark? Well, it's probably because you don't want anyone to see what you're saying. They can't identify the message with the person. But when it's heard in the light, you can see where it came from. Or why do you whisper something in secret? Because you don't want it to be made known. But it will be proclaimed from the rooftop. What is this that is being said and whispered? What's being said and whispered is ultimately who you follow, who's your king, who you're devoted to. What you have whispered in the private room. This private room was the storehouse. It was in the cellar, you know, the root cellar, the small place where only you go. But ultimately, the private room Jesus is talking about is the human heart. There is no more of a private place than the human heart. But Jesus came to reveal the private room. Remember the prophecy of the baby Jesus? This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The Apostle John put it this way, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light, lest his works be exposed. So what Jesus is, is he is a flashlight of the human heart, who has come to expose our devotion. The question we must ask is, when is this going to happen? Jesus said that it's going to happen, but when? There are really two times that we can see that. The first is at the end of all things. There is a judgment that this world is leading up to. 
1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motive of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. There is ultimately a judgment that we will all face, which will bring to heart what is in the secret room. But there is also an anti-judgment to judgment, and that is that of persecution, a warm-up, so to speak. Verse 12, but before all this, excuse me, Luke 21, 12, but before all this, meaning the judgment, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives, and they will put some of you to death. Jesus is saying the future of judgment is coming. Disciples, you in particular as my apostles, must be prepared to stand because you will stand. So there is a need for them and for us to decide beforehand who we are and who we worship. So much in religion is about fixing the outside. And I could spend a lot of time spouting out moralistic teachings of how you're supposed to live and clean up your act. But I want to suggest to you that I'm trying to reach the inside of your heart. See, the thing about leaven is it doesn't take much, just a little bit. We have to clean the inside of the cup. The outside will be clean. And how do we do that? Wholehearted devotion. Not about performance as much as about devotion. Notice the things that Jesus calls us to. What is the greatest commandment, Jesus says? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down and worship them. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's about devotion, deciding who will be first and foremost in my life. But where are these decisions made? They're made first in the private room. They're made first in the dark. They're whispered in secret. Ultimately, they will be tested. I don't know if you're familiar with the St. Andreas Fault. I'm sure many of you are. It was uh, exposited wonderfully by Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. But it is a continental fault that extends about 10 miles down, about 810 miles through California. And basically what it is is where two tectonic plates butt up against each other. Okay, the, there are seams throughout the mantle or the crust of the earth, and the crust of the earth is actually moving. Well, the problem with this fault line is the Pacific plate, which is on the west side, is moving, uh, it's moving um, northwest this way, while the North American plate is moving southeast. Okay, so what's going on is one is moving this way and the other is moving this way but they're moving at different speeds in different directions. And ultimately, there is going to be a conflict. In fact, there's already been several conflicts. A recent study in the 2006 Journal of Nature found that the St. Andreas Fault had reached a sufficient stress level 
for an earthquake of magnitude greater than 7.0 to occur. This study also showed that it was going to be uh, that the risk of a large earthquake may be increasing more rapidly than previously believed and should be somewhere around Los Angeles because the other places where they have occurred in 1857 and 1906 were in different segments of the fault, while the southern section has not seen any similar rupture for at least 300 years. What are they saying? It's just a matter of time. There is a incompatibility between these two plates and they're shifting and moving. And no one knows exactly when the time is going to be, but that ultimately there is going to be a conflict and a clash. Which will win? I don't know. The truth of the matter is, my friends, as Christians, our world and us are moving in different directions almost complete opposite directions from one another. There is a conflict and a clash if you want to follow Christ in this world. And what is below will ultimately be brought to the surface. God calls us to a life of integrity. So the first question that you have to ask is the question of the secret room. Who am I? There's so many things that clamor for the inside of our hearts. Don't worry about Jesus. Focus on being popular at your high school. Don't worry about eternal inheritance in Christ. This world is now. We have been trained to believe that there is only one time, only one world right here. You can even put all your trust and your hope in religion. But what Jesus wants from us more than anything is for us to claim, I am yours. I belong to you. So examine your heart. Examine your life. Are you wholehearted or half-hearted? You know, it's the half-hearted things we do that wear us out ultimately. You can never experience joy being half-hearted. You're always unstable like a fault. It's wholeheartedness, the wholeheartedness that we need, or we will buckle. It's a wholehearted life that God calls us to, a life of joy and peace, where we can lay down our head in our bed because we have made it. We are His, regardless of what comes ahead. So don't straddle the fault. Jesus doesn't give us that option. Be all of mine or none of mine, for I want all of you. This brings me to my second point. Few have made a life of wholehearted devotion. You can live a life of wholehearted trust. Verse four, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. Jesus is saying and calling his disciples, my friends. Listen, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because they're the ones who have the power. They're in control of the governmental system. They have the ear of the Romans. They ultimately have the power of physical life and death. And Jesus says, don't fear them. Why? Why? Because their power only is in this life. 
We have been sold a lie that there is all there is to life is this life. So live for this life. And ultimately, all life is about is avoiding pain and maximizing pleasure. And so we give fear to things that do not deserve our awe. But I warn you, Jesus says, who to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We are to fear someone. Not those who can kill the body and do nothing more, but those who can kill and they can cast. There's only one who can do that. God. To cast into hell. This word hell, by the way, Gehenna, if you're wondering where it comes from. In the Hebrew, it comes from the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, which was an actual physical place. It was where the followers of Moloch, who was a god that would offer child sacrifice. They would sacrifice their children to the god Moloch. And the Hebrews would be pulled by the, uh, they would do it to some of them throughout uh, the history of Israel. There were times when they would actually do this detestable practice. It was the king Josiah who demolished the Valley of Hinnom and he made it into a trash heap. So God is using this as an illustration. It's a place of evil, a place for those who do evil. What, God, what Jesus is saying is that you need to fear the one who has authority after this life. See, even on earth you can kill without authority, but no one can cast into hell without authority. Because only the one who is the ultimate judge is the one who can choose he who has, uh, uh, is righteous and who is not. Acts 17.31, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man whom he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Well, that's not fair. Who made God judge over me? I would say it's not fair if there's not a place like hell. Because if there's not a place like hell, then what about the person who's killed without authority? Is there no justice for that situation? Is there no justice for the evil in the world? Is there no ultimate reckoning for right and wrong? Is this world simply whoever has the most power? No, he will judge the world with justice. That's why he's called the ruler. Right? We use a ruler, don't we? 12-inch ruler, it's the standard. Fear him, Jesus says, twice. Fear him. But then he continues in verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than than many sparrows. See, we fear God, but he immediately reassures us. God is the only one who should be feared. But the character of God is such that one need not fear him. Do you know how many hairs you have on your head? 100,000 hairs. By the way, blondes have more, 150,000. Lucky you. Think about that. Every single hair on your head is numbered. Why does God know every hair? Because he's intimately concerned with us like you know your baby when you look at it. Even your hairs are numbered. And what about these sparrows sold for two pennies? 
Not one of them is forgotten by God. So do not fear. Now, the sparrows, why are they being sold? They're being sold to be sacrificed. Right? Jesus is making a comparison. He's saying to the disciples, listen, there's going to be persecution and suffering. But not apart from my attentiveness. Not apart from my care. Not in a way that circumvents the redemptive plan of God. So do not fear this world because I've got you in my hand. We fear a lot of things in this world, you and I. We fear sickness. We fear those in authority. We fear this world, what could happen? But what is the worst thing that they can do? Yes, they can inflict pain on us. Yes, maybe they can ultimately kill us. But there is an ultimate judge who values us. Every hair on our head. And we can trust him. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, he marched to the trash dump. Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he was crucified outside of Jerusalem. Jesus Christ was given over to death on the cross that we might experience life in place of his life, that he would experience the punishment for sin so that we would not have to take it. Jesus Christ paid for every single hair that's on your head. And so he promises to those who have trusted him who have devoted their lives to him, who will fail, who will screw it up living a holy life, we're not perfected yet, that you can trust the one you have entrusted your life to because he is life. And so, he is your ultimate judge. He is your ultimate future. He is your source of value. So you can live in wholehearted trust that God's got you, regardless of what comes ahead. Whether America falls into a deep hole in this earth or whether it stands. Whether you get sick and have cancer and die. Whether you're accosted on the street, you can trust that God's got you. And every hair on your head is numbered. This brings me to my final point. We can live with wholehearted confidence. Jesus says in, the, in verse 8, I think, or verse 9, verse 8, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. He's saying to the disciples, he's saying to everyone, he who acknowledges, by the way, this word acknowledge would be the same word from where we get the word eulogize, homologeo. He who lifts me up, he who speaks much of me, he who believes in me, he who trusts me, he who puts his rock, his feet on my rock, he who has confidence in me. See, there's a test, there's two courtrooms, if you will. There's a courtroom on earth, and there's a courtroom of angels. The courtroom on earth, all we're called to do is testify. 
All we're called to do is to acknowledge and tell who we have put our confidence in. However that judge chooses to judge us doesn't matter. But there's a second courtroom, a courtroom of angels. And do you know who is standing at your side at the courtroom of angels? The Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. There is one who judges rightly, indeed one who advocates in that angelic courtroom, the one who is wholeheartedly devoted to God, who can trust God in all circumstances, can have confidence when it comes time to speak who is your hope and your trust and your confidence in before man. But this passage here, the one who denies me before man will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. We hear this message and we're frightened. But we can't take this passage away from the rest of the passages of Scripture. You know, Paul denied Christ. Some of those Pharisees who ended up following Christ denied Christ. There have been times in my life when I have denied Christ. Before I became a Christian, certainly deny him sometimes in the way I live my life. But when he talks about denying the Holy Spirit, that's denying Jesus for what he has done and who he is. The graciousness that he's given us, the forgiveness in the cross, all that comes along with that. It's denying the very thing that Christ has come to do. That's who's denying the Holy Spirit. He's not speaking about perfect Christians. He's speaking about half-hearted Christians, half-hearted devotion to him, who've never really given their hearts to Christ. Those will not be forgiven. But when they bring you disciples before the synagogues and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. See, our confidence comes in this, that the one who has us will be with us and will tell us what to do and how to say and will strengthen us. Maybe you fear the future. Will I be able to stand before people and proclaim Christ as Lord when it really comes down to it? The answer is yes. You won't be able to. But you are in him and he is in you. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's wholeheartedly devoted to you before you were ever wholeheartedly devoted to him. We can have a wholehearted confidence, a wholehearted trust in the one who we have wholeheartedly devoted our heart to. Jesus has demonstrated to us he is worthy of all of our heart's devotion. So much like the disciples, hear what Jesus is saying in this respite before we go out into the world. I don't know what's going to happen the rest of today. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. All I know is that Christ is trustworthy, that Christ is wholeheartedly devoted to me. And so I can make one decision with my life. I can't decide how I'm going to act in the future. 
I don't know whether I'm going to blow it or not. I can't decide how I'm going to act when something comes up against me. But I can decide who I give my heart to. Don't settle for anything less than giving all of yourself to all of him. Because when you do, you will be able to live with a wholehearted trust in the midst of the storm and a wholehearted confidence in the midst of the enemy. This is the promise that he gave to the disciples. It's the promise that he gives to us. And he who promised is faithful to the very end. Let's pray. Lord, what you desire is wholeheartedness in the secret place. Lord, we will fail, save for you. Our hope and our confidence is built on nothing less. Lord, but you call us to experience a life of trust and peace and confidence in the midst of the uncertainty of life's storms. So Lord, I pray even today, strengthen our resolution that we would have no other God or Lord but you. And maybe for someone in the congregation who is never, ever in the secret place given all of their heart to you, that they would decide to bow the knee, to put all of their trust and hope and confidence and love in you. Lord, meet them there. And from the inside out, let the love of Christ be made manifest. All of these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.